Anybody here ever been laughed at or mocked when you spoke up for your faith in Jesus Christ or your belief in the Bible? Anybody here in that situation? Is that all? Man. Okay, that's better. That's better. If you're not experiencing any uh, mocking or scoffing or, or having somebody give you a rough time for your Christian faith, you must not be talking about Jesus enough. Or, or you must not be living a consistent Christian life and have somebody tell you how foolish that is. Chances are, if you live for Christ, you talk at all about what you believe in this world in which we live today, this anti-God, anti-Christ world in which we live today, you are going to be scoffed at. You do it in school, you do it at work, you do it on a college campus in front of an ungodly professor, you're going to be scoffed at. Sometimes if you are in a family of, where you might be a first generation of believers in that family, somebody may give you a rough time about your faith in Christ. I want to direct your attention this morning to... 2 Peter chapter 3, and in this passage of Scripture, we get some help to stand strong before scoffing that comes our way. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1. We're just going to read the first four verses here this morning. It says, Behold, but beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers treat lightly what should be taken very seriously. The people of Noah's day scoffed at him as he built the ark and warned them of, of coming floods and coming judgment. Lot's son-in-laws and the people of Sodom scoffed at him as he taught, warned about the judgment that was coming on Sodom. Pharaoh mocked Moses when Moses stood before him and gave him the word from God that God said, let my people go. And Pharaoh mocked it. Who is this God? He said, trying to order me, the king of Egypt, around. We find that the scoffing against Christ and against Christians is being experienced today. We have brothers and sisters in Christ and other places in this world that are, are being treated un, unmercifully, terribly. For no other reason than the fact that they are Christian. Some are being tortured. Some are being killed. Some are being ridiculed before the society in which they live. It's a common thing. And we're headed that direction in this country. When you stand up and speak up for some of the, against some of the things that are going on in our country today and take a stand for biblical morality, you're called a bigot. You're scoffed at. It's happening. And one of the things that's being scoffed at today and has been down through the years is the uh, second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus was here the first time, paid for our sins on the cross at Calvary, 
he, he left this world with a promise that he was coming back again. And here, 2,000 years later, we're still hanging on to that promise that he's coming back again. But people scoff at that. People make fun of the fact that they even think about the idea that Jesus Christ is coming back again. Some reject the fact that he was here the first time and certainly make fun of the fact that he might come back again. The sad thing is some of this is taking place from false teachers within the church. I still think back to when I graduated from college and was thinking about going to seminary. A friend and I visited Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. Uh, Princeton had been founded by Jonathan Edwards and Puritans and, and had a great uh, biblical heritage in its early days. But it, it changed immensely. And as my friend and I were talking with one professor, he was talking about some of the difficult things going on in the world. And I brought up the second coming of Jesus Christ as something that's going to happen and, and is the only thing really that's going to straighten out this world. You realize that, don't you? I think we have responsibilities to try to be salt and light and to try to bring peace to our little corner of the world and to our families and to our lives. But you do realize that ultimately the only thing that's going to straighten out this world is when Christ comes back and reigns over it supremely. Well, I brought that up to that seminary professor, and he made me feel about that tall with some of the things that he said, how ludicrous it was to have this pie-in-the-sky attitude and to think that Jesus coming back was going to solve any problem. This is a seminary professor, a man that's training people for the ministry. Is it any wonder that there are people out in pulpits today that are basically ridiculing the idea that Jesus is coming back again, and especially ridiculing the idea that Christ is coming back again, and when he does, it's going to be in power and it's going to be in glory and it's going to be to execute judgment upon unbelief and upon those that are in rebellion against God. That idea is just laughed out of, basically trying to laugh out of existence today in the eyes of, of many, many folks. Most of Third Peter, most of Second Peter 3 focuses on the fact that Jesus is coming back again. And that glorious truth was a powerful source of encouragement and motivation for people for Peter's original readers as they faced persecution and it serves as a great source of hope and motivation for us as we live for Christ today. It is sad that too many people in this world don't have that hope or any motivation to live for Jesus because they have been influenced by some of these impressive speakers who viciously scoff at Jesus and at any thought of his coming back to this planet in power and glory and judgment. In these four verses that we read this morning, we read of three factors that uh, can be of, of, of great value and helping us to stand strong in, in the face of scoffing today. We find, first of all, that it, we need to experience saving faith. You know, if you're going to stand up to scoffing against Christ and against Christians, it helps if you're a Christian and you're the real deal, that you really have a relationship with Christ. If you're just kind of a, a nominal believer, you're just kind of you know, a religious person, you're probably not going to stand up to that scoffing. It's probably going to have a, a de very detrimental effect upon you. We also can be encouraged by, by supporting friends. And Peter draws our attention to some of those supporting friends and this passage today. And, and lastly, 
We, we can be helped to, to stand up against scoffing by just plain expecting it. It's going to come. If you haven't been scoffed at for living for Christ, if you live for him, you stand up for him in this world, it is going to come. Don't be surprised by it. It's going to happen. Well, first of all, we find it's very important that we experience saving faith. Peter is writing primarily to believers among his original company that he's writing to and even with this body that we're directing to, uh, to this passage of Scripture this morning. Primarily believers. If you go back in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, we see as he, he addresses his letter, he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he goes on and talks about uh, the, the, the wonderful blessings we have, the, the great promises we have. The Same thing in, in 1 Peter. If you read that first chapter, he makes it very clear that he, the people that he's writing to, he assumes for the most part, are believers. And now we get into the third chapter, and the first word in the chapter is, is beloved. This is a word that, that Peter uses to address those that are, for the most part, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's talking to believers. And then, very interesting in here, he also says, I stir up your pure mind. That, that When he speaks about them having pure minds or sincere minds or right minds, it's a reference to those people as believers. Because we find that... Uh, the unsaved mind in Scripture has some interesting ways in which it is uh, referred to. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, it, it says that, that God has given those that, that are not thankful for Him being the Creator, those who turn to worship the creation rather than the, than the Creator. It says God has given them over to a reprobate mind. That means a... a, a depraved mind, a, a, non, a mind that just doesn't function right. And it goes on elsewhere, and it, describes, it talks about people that, with an unsaved mind being blinded in their mind, being corrupted in their mind, have, having vanity in, in their, their, their thinking, being defiled and being carnal and at enmity or in hostility towards God. And, you know, you look around sometimes at, at the world we live in, and we we see some of the things that are going on, and we say, what, what's the problem here? You know, when you live in a world where you can be fined and imprisoned for breaking a condor egg, but in that same society, you can abort a baby clear up through the third trimester. Does anybody see something wrong with that? Is that warped thinking or not? How can people even think that way? How can people come up with all that kind of a, a thought process. Well, it's because of the unsaved having a reprobate mind. And we can take the rest of our hour this morning and give example after example after example in our country and really around the world uh, of examples of this reprobate thinking thing that just doesn't make any sense. In fact, so many of the things that they're trying to do in our country today, moving us more and more towards socialism, if you look around the world, every place where socialism has been tried, what's happened? It has failed miserably. Yet we're going to try the same thing here. That's enough of that. But you get my point. There's something wrong with the thinking of the man that doesn't have a relationship with God. He's got a reprobate mind, a depraved mind, a defiled mind. His mind doesn't function like it should. And one of the great things that happens when we become a believer, the Holy Spirit does a work 
to, to regenerate our minds. In, in Titus chapter 3, it says that we're not, it's not by works of righteousness that we've done, but if it's according to God's mercy that we're saved, and he, he regenerates us with, with the washing, washing of regeneration, and, and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit renew? He renews our minds. And then one of the ways we grow as a Christian is by having our minds continue to be renewed to where we begin to think more and more like God does. We're told we shouldn't be uh, conformed to this world, but we should be transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. By learning to think the way that God does. In 1 Corinthians 2, it talks about several different kinds of minds. It talks about the natural mind, the natural man. He doesn't receive the things of God because they're, they're foolishness to him. But the the spiritual man, the man that's got a relationship with Christ, he can receive the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. And, and he goes on in that 16th verse of, of 1 Corinthians 2, and it says that amazing statement, we have the mind of Christ. We can think like God does. We can think like Jesus does. And we have the mind of Christ primarily given to us here in objective form in the Scriptures. But we can understand it. Well, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit works on you and illumines the Word of God so that you can understand it and we can see what, what God has to say and get God's perspective on life and God's perspective on society and God's perspective on marriage and God's perspective on government and God's perspective on salvation. We have the mind of Christ. What a blessing that is. As you come to know Christ as your Savior, and you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. And we find that our need is to be, be stirred up. In fact, that's why Peter says he's right. I'm writing to, to bring some reminders to you and to, to stir up your mind by way of reminder. You know, the greatest strength that we can have against scoffing and, and making fun of, of what God would have us to do is being well-grounded in God's revealed truth, being well-grounded in the Scriptures. What does God say? What does the Word of God say about this? We need that kind of a grounding. And it, you know what? It doesn't matter who laughs at you or who gives you a hard time or who persecutes you. If you're living according to what God's revealed to us in this book, you know, I'd a lot rather have people scoff at me than God. And you go back to Psalm 2, and it does talk about God laughing some people to derision. <laughs> uh, those that are in rebellion against him. You want the world to laugh at you? You want God to laugh at a derision. I'll take people laughing at me any day rather than an eternal God. Our, our need is to be, to be mindful. That term mindful means to be excited, having a sense of urgency, some enthusiasm, and, and hope and joy as you go through life. And you can have that as you've got the mind of Christ, as you know Christ is your Savior, as the Holy Spirit dwells within you and, and stirs up your mind. What a great thing that is. You know, we also not only have the, when we have the experience of saving faith, that helps us to stand up to scoffing. But Peter also brings our attention to some, some, some friends that will, will support us. In fact, he himself is a, is a friend to us. As he writes these letters, he's a friend to us. He, he reminds us of things that we need to be reminded of. This third chapter is a great chapter. As he speaks to us about some amazing things connected with the second coming of Christ and what God has in store for this world. Can't wait to get to some of that. Peter's a friend. He also 
tells us to be mindful of the words of the holy prophets. In fact, the thing he's talking about here is what the prophets have to say about the coming of a divine Messiah in power and glory and judgment. As you go back and read the prophets, they, they have two kind of prophecies about the coming Messiah. Some speak about him coming as a suffering Messiah and Savior. Isaiah 53 is probably the best example of that we have in the Old Testament. But we have a whole, we have about 300 of those prophecies that, that were fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. There's about 700, more than 700 prophecies of his coming in power and glory and judgment at, at the end of the tribulation. But just let me give you one. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. Starting in verse 9. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I, I will halt the arrogance of the proud. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And you go on down through and read about further judgment. And I, I, there's a list of other prophets up there, Daniel and, and Joel and Zechariah and Malachi. And, and those are just a few examples. We find the Old Testament prophets had a, a frequent theme of the coming of the day of the Lord. And as Joel points out, for some it's going to be a day of brightness. Well, for the believer, it's going to be a day, day of brightness when you get to see your Savior face to face. But for those who reject Christ, it's going to be a day of darkness and a day of gloom and a day of judgment. And the world scoffs at that today, but the Bible teaches that. That's a frequent theme in the Old Testament. Not just Jesus coming to be our Savior. And thank God, He did come to be our Savior. Aren't you glad He did that? Aren't you glad he came to suffer and die on that cross so you could be forgiven of all your sins? I am thrilled that he did that for me. And it's exciting to go back and read those Old Testament prophecies of him being cut off for his people and dying for us and being bruised for our iniquity. It's exciting to read about that. And without that, we wouldn't have any hope. We need Christ to be our Savior. But those same Old Testament prophets talk about him coming to be a deliverer and a Savior, also warned of judgment coming upon those who would reject God and reject the Messiah. And the world doesn't like hearing that message today, but it's there, and it's biblical. And we need to recognize that. We find that Peter also directs our attention to, and encourages us to be mindful of the commandment of the Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior. Now, what is that commandment? That, that commandment that he gives is, is when he talks about the fact that he's coming again in power and glory and judgment, and he accompanies with that our need to watch, our need to be ready, our need to be prepared. That's the commandment. Be ready when the Lord comes back again. That's repeated frequently throughout the gospel preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just one example in, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. He talks about his coming back there, coming in power and glory, and talks about the judgment that he's going to give. In fact, in chapter 25, 
He talks about the judgment upon the nations, sheep and goat nations, his judgment upon Israel. And he, he adds to that the need for, for people to be watching for him, ready for him. You know, we don't know the day and the hour. We don't know when Christ is coming back again. But we need the command from him is be ready. Be ready. You know, if you're ready every day, then you'll certainly be ready when the Lord comes back. That's his command. He also gives command through the, through the apostles. And as it talks here about giving the command through the apostles, it's talking about the New Testament. God used the New Testament, the apostles primarily to write the New Testament. And the New Testament has plenty to say about Jesus' coming return and power and glory and judgment and our need to be ready. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, you'll find 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament uh, speak directly of Christ's return. Two of the others, Galatians uh, speaks about, uh, makes reference to the Lord's return, and, and 2 John also talks about his coming reward. So it's only at least Philemon and 3 John that, that don't speak about the second coming of Christ. In fact, we have whole books of the New Testament that pretty well are connected with that. You go to the book of Revelation, what it's about? It's about Christ coming back again, right? And you have that great crescendo in, in, in chapter 19. But go over there with me. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. God reveals this to the apostle John. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a, a white horse, and, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is that? That's Jesus. This is Jesus coming back again. So the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fiercest of the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it goes on and describes his victory over the men who stand in rebellion against him and actually try to keep Jesus from coming back to this earth, his victory over the coming beast, the Antichrist and the false prophet, his victory over Satan at the same time. Uh, the, the New Testament teaches the second coming of Christ, doesn't it? In power, in glory, and also in judgment. Uh, it's very, very important themes that we ought to take note of. And we dare not neglect, and, and we certainly should not scoff at. We find there are those that say that, uh, now what's God know? God doesn't really see. What's God care? What's God going to do about it? Well, we find the third thing. We need to strengthen us so we're ready to stand when scoffing comes in our direction. The third thing is that we need to expect it to come. Scoffers were warned about it in the Old Testament. In Psalm 1, and verse 1, talks about the blessed man. It says one thing about the blessed man is he doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful, the seat of the scoffer. Psalm 73, it talks there about 
those that scoff at the whole idea that God even knows or sees what's going on in their life or that God's going to do anything about it. Uh, scoffers can be expected in the last days. Well, when did the last days begin? In fact, if you look at that third verse, it says, Know this first. Make sure you get this. This is an important fact. Know that scoffers will come in the last days. When did the last days begin? Well, they began when Jesus came the first time. And they scoffed at him. The religious leaders scoffed at him as he carried out his ministry. When they, they nailed him on that cross and, and scourged him and beat him and prepared him for that time. The Roman soldiers and the, the Jewish leaders and even the, some of the, one of the criminals that was hanging on the cross next to him. What did they do? They all scoffed at Jesus. If you're really the son of God, come down from that cross. Take us down with you. They scoffed at it. And we're told here that it's going to continue on to our, in the last days. Scoffers are going to come. Expect it. It's going to happen. Be prepared for it. In fact, one of the things they'll, they'll ask is where is the promise of his coming? You know, where is this, this second coming that, that he promised? They, they deny God's supernatural involvement in the affairs of men. They deny a future coming day of judgment. And in connection with that, they deny God's super involved, supernatural involvement in the affairs of men previously. Now, that, that we can expect scoffers to come and scoff at the whole idea that Christ is coming back again. The fact of the matter is, they're, as we're told here, they're controlled by their own will, uh, not the directive of God. Basically, it's this. They want to do what they want to do without thinking about accountability. They want People want to do what they want to do without thinking of having to give a report to God someday or, or God judging them someday. And so what do they do? They scoff at it. He's not coming back again. Man, it's been 2,000 years. He's not coming back again. There is no coming judgment. We don't have to worry about that. That's what the scoffers say fact of the matter is the doctrine that it's got that is the Lord's return and they deny this matter of, of supernatural involvement and accountability and claim that things always continue the same since the fathers died that's why he's talking about the patriarchs or maybe even going back to, to Adam they, they say that things are, are the same from the beginning of creation at least some of the scoffers in Peter's day they acknowledge the idea that God was the creator in our day they've, they've just tried to eliminate God completely as the creator you want to eliminate him as judge and being accountable to him, let's come up with some other explanation for the origins of things. So we got geniuses in our day that say that things just came into being. You know, something came out of nothing. Life comes out of non-life. Once again, that comes, that's, that's an indication of the reprobate mind. Things don't come into existence out of nothing. You know, we begin with a supernatural, sovereign God who brings things into existence. And then he's got the capability to produce life and to create all things. We've got people trying to eliminate God. They're, they're uniformitarian. We'll talk about that word a little bit more. It's a big word, one you ought to know, though. And, and, and in contrast to that, we find that the Bible teaches not uniformitarian, where, where just things always are the same, but rather the Bible indicates there are times when as things are moving along, God gets involved. And they move along, and then God gets involved again. 
In fact, it starts with God getting involved, or we would have nothing. It all begins with God creating things. You go through a period of wickedness, and then God gets involved in day and basically starts all over again with eight people. And things go along in Israel, and they're, 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 they're moving along, even though they're rebelling against God. And God gets involved and sends Assyria to conquer them, the northern kingdom. Then he sends Babylon to conquer the southern kingdom. And things are moving along, and God steps into the world in the flesh by means of the virgin birth and incarnation, and God becomes a man for the whole purpose of being our Savior. Last Sunday, we celebrated his resurrection from the dead. You know? you know what? I'm still celebrating. You realize Jesus is still alive, right? And we can celebrate today and tomorrow and next week. He's alive. At the end of 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended back into heaven, and he's interceding at the right hand of God for you and me today. He's our intercessor. And one of these days, he's getting involved again. Actually, he is involved. He stays involved. But one of these days, he's going to get involved supernaturally. And he's going to descend to the clouds with the trump of God and the voice of the archangel. There's going to be a shout, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then there's going to be the seven years of terrible tribulation on this earth. And then he's getting involved again supernaturally. At the end of that, coming back to this planet, setting up his kingdom on planet earth. And we get to be part of it if we know him as our Savior. Scoffers say things just keep going. They, they never, God never gets involved. If he did create things, he just kind of wound it up like a clock and then stepped away from it. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Our God's involved and gets involved in amazing fashion, supernatural. In fact, you know the very fact that scoffers arise in the church and outside of the church a testimony to the trustworthiness of Scripture because we're told it's going to happen, right? Made abundantly clear to us. So my, we need to respond. When the scoffing comes, I really plead with you, don't let the laughter and the mocking of scoffers disturb or defeat you. They mock and they scoff at Jesus, didn't they? They'll mock and scoff at us. And, and persecute us, and we can expect that to come. In Second Peter chapter 3, uh, Paul's trying to prepare Timothy for the difficulties of, of serving Christ in this day and age, and in this church age. And he says, in verse three, chapter 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the mockers. Paul's telling Timothy, it's going to happen. And you can imagine Timothy's response might be, well, Paul, if that's the case, what should I do? And our response is, we're told by Peter and, and here by Paul in 2 Timothy, these scoffers, these mockers, these deceivers, these persecutors, they're coming. Okay, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? I believe we're really headed for some persecution as believers in this country. And I believe the gay marriage thing and the same-sex marriage is going to be one of the things that's going to trigger it. Because once that is recognized as a civil right, you think the church will be allowed to be keep, continue to deny people their civil rights? 
I may spend some time in jail. I hope you come and visit me because I'm not going to stop preaching the Bible. And I hope you'll keep teaching and keep preaching the same truths as well. We, we love people that are sinners, all kinds of sinners. We love people that, that have homosexual tendencies and are directed in that way. But you know what? The Bible says that's sin, but Christ died for sin, and people can be saved. We, we love folks. We don't set ourselves up above folks. But, man, we have to keep honoring what this book says. And when the persecution comes, sometimes, okay, sometimes it's not, okay, what could we do to stop it? What could we do to stop this snowball that's rolling downhill in our culture today with secular humanism taking over and, and this whole liberal agenda? What can we do to stop? I don't know that we can. Revival would stop. It'd be great if we had a tremendous spiritual revival in this country and people would turn to Christ. And so to be involved, to trigger something like that, you and I need to be faithful to share in Christ. We should be doing that. That's the only thing that will head it off. Will there be a great revival? I don't know. It'd be great if there was, but I don't know. But if there isn't, and we head into persecution in the United States of America, even similar to what our brothers and sisters are dealing with around the globe, what can we do? How do we handle that? We handle that when we're the ones scoff, singled out as scoffers and, and, and we're singled out as bigots and those that are haters and those that are out of step with society. Thank God we're out of step with society. I want to be in step with God. What do we do? Well, Paul answers Timothy. He tells him, in, starting in verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3, you got all this deceiving and deception coming on, all this persecution. He says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to be thoroughly equipped for good works, even in the face of scoffers and persecution? Here it is. Hang on to the Scriptures. Remember what you learned. Remember who you learned it from. We learned it from Jesus. We learned it from the apostles. We learned it from God. We learned it from faithful teachers down through the years who loved God. What do we do? Hang on to it. We need to hold tenaciously to the truth of Scripture. Not give it up. Hit that button once, would you, Mike? There we go. Today, as we wrap it up, we ought to thank God that we're saved and have a renewed mind. I hope you can say that. I hope each one here today thank God. I know Christ. I thank God that He's given me. His mind helped me to understand the scriptures, to see things correctly and clearly in eternal perspective. We'd be encouraged by our friends. The prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they're your friends. The New Testament apostles, they're your friends. Jesus is your friend. What's the song say? What a friend we have in Jesus. They want to teach us how to get along in this life, to be prepared for eternity. And we should expect scoffing to come and expect it to get worse. Don't be disturbed by it. Continue to stand for God. You want to be on the right side, God's side, the right side. 
not the devils, not the world, them and God's. Heavenly Father, thank you for this warning. It shouldn't surprise us when scoffing and difficulty come. It shouldn't surprise us when persecution comes our way. God, help us to stand faithful. Lord, I pray if there's anybody with us today that doesn't know Christ and they're, they're yet dealing with a, a blinded mind, help them to see their need for Christ to be able to even live their life properly down here and especially to be prepared for eternity and to be prepared for that time when Jesus would come back in power and glory and judgment. Lord, help us to stand up in this world and identify with you and let the people know whose side we're on. We pray it in the Savior's name. Would you take your hymnal one more time, please? Turn with me to 484. And I hope you can sing this as your testimony this morning. We are on the Lord's side. Are you? Are you on God's side this morning? Well, I better stand with God than stand with the rest of the world, right? Stand with me.